Awesome. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Okay, you guys can come on up. <laughs> I have some friends coming up here with me this morning. This is Houston. Can everyone say hi, Houston? We'll do what we do in kids. This is Cade. Everyone say hi, Cade. His mom and dad are over there jamming out and singing. It's a good time. So a few weeks ago in kids, um, I was able to preach and teach them all about the veil that was torn. And it just so happened to be right before Easter, and I loved it. Um, and I remember I asked them, I said, kids, does anyone know what the veil is? And not one of them raised their hand. And so to me, like, that's a privilege that I get to teach them that. And so it's fitting on Easter. Um, so I just wanted to ask them a few questions, and they wanted to share about it. Right, guys? Cade, Houston? Yes. Okay. So they're like, I'm being forced to do this. It's okay. Okay, so Houston, um, what was the veil? The veil was a curtain that separated earth from God's presence. Yes, I love it. That was like a that was a deep answer. Good job. Okay, so who was behind the curtain, Cade? God. God, yeah. Okay. Um so Cade, another question. Who do you remember who could go past the curtain? Do you remember who that was? The high priest. High priest. And how many times a year could they go? Once. Yes, he's rocking it. Once a year. So they only went once a year and that was for the atonement for our sins. So um Houston, when Jesus Jesus died on the cross, what happened to that? The veil was torn when Jesus died on the cross. Yes. And Kate, I heard you had a really good answer to this question. So why was it a good thing that the veil was torn once Jesus died? So so we can be talk to God and be with God whenever we want. Yes. Give him a round of applause. You guys rocked it. High fives. High five. Good job. Okay, so we'll stay up here. We're just going to pray, and then we can dismiss the kids, okay? Jesus, I just thank you so much for just Church 214, God, and Kids 214, that kids can come and literally learn about you, Lord, and learn about your word, God. And we're just so thankful for kids like Houston and for kids like Kate, God, that can um, soak it in and absorb it, Lord. And we're just thankful that you sent your son to die on the cross so that we can have access to God, Lord. Praise your name. Amen. Okay, you guys can head down. Kids are dismissed. Kids, you guys can run on back there. Your kids, like, dart back like a herd of animals every week. It's really funny. So I get the privilege of introducing someone um, who I love and I adore, and he's someone who makes me laugh a lot. I laugh at him. It's a good time. Um, we dance in the kitchen together. I get to watch him um, just pursue his dreams being up here, and it's been a really cool privilege and honor. So I'd like to welcome my husband, David Little. Good morning. Happy Easter. Glad to see we have a packed house today. That's always very exciting. So we're starting a new series today on identity, our identity in Christ. And I wanted to take the approach of talking about uh, identity theft and kind of go off of the idea that Satan tries to steal who our identity is supposed to be. And this week, something happened that kind of fit into this, so I want to share the story with you. My wife, whom I love so much, <laughs> was working on our computer. And have any of you ever heard of the term malware? So malware is basically, it's, it's kind of a mixture of two words, malicious and software. And you put them together, and you get this thing called malware. And it's basically any program that has the intent to do harm to your computer. Sometimes it's to show advertisements to get you to buy product. Sometimes it is there 
to steal information off your computer, to steal your identity. Well, this week, as my wife was preparing for Kids 214, she was trying to download a program that could rip Vimeo videos so she could play them for the kids. Well, in doing that, she downloaded a program that did that, but first, she downloaded a program that looked like it did that, but what it actually did was install malware on the computer and make our computer not function as it should. So she unknowingly installed two separate programs to make our computer, well, it's, it's not, very, not very good. So as I was trying to finish working on our message this week and as she was doing some stuff, we kept getting frustrated with our computer because we couldn't do anything on it without it freezing up and uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the best thing. So I've yet to remedy the problem, but we'll get there and it's probably going to be a good old fashioned reformat of the computer. Um, that seems to usually fix it, so probably have to throw away all of our important documents and photos and such. I'm, I'm just kidding, <laughs> kind of. But the computer is giving us issues. I just thought that was interesting timing as we were talking about this identity theft that that would happen, because I'm very technically savvy, for th those of you who know me, and those of you who don't will just have to take my word on that. But my wife, on the other hand, relies on my uh, technical abilities for a lot of things, and I wasn't there to help defend the computer in this moment of weakness. So. <laughs> So we'll have to fix that, but uh, <laughs> that was just something kind of funny that happened this week. We'll, we'll get past it. It's not a big deal, but I just thought it was interesting, the timing on that. She's like, you have to tell that story, and I'm like, I don't want to throw you under the bus. She's like, no, it's funny. I'm like, okay. If you say I can, I will. I love you, babe. <laughs> we'll get it fixed. So a couple of years ago, my wife and I went to Florida with her family, and Taylor, uh, Taylor's family had been doing this every year for as, as long as uh, she was alive, I'm pretty sure, and... Uh, a couple years ago, we went down to Panama City Beach, and I'd never been there. I went to Florida one other time in high school, but never to the beach, and uh, it was really a good time. We rented scooters, and we drove all around town. Um, as we were on our scooters driving around town, which was a lot of fun, we got stuck in a storm, and so uh, the boys, as we called ourselves, all of the uh, male members in her family were all driving these scooters, and we're a couple miles away from our condo, and it starts pouring rain, and we're like, what do we do? We're out in the middle of the highway on these scooters. There's nowhere to go. And we're like, we're freaking out. We, we finally get back to uh, the scooter drop-off drop off location. We drop them off, and her dad comes and picks us up. We're all soaked, but it was, it was a good time. Anyway, we went to souvenir shops and bought silly T-shirts and took a million selfies at the ocean, some of which I would show you, but I didn't get them loaded properly onto our program, so I'll just have to imagine them in my head, and you guys will just have to think of the ocean with me and taking selfies. So that's kind of what we did there. Um, one of the evenings we were walking down on the pier and Taylor had to use the restroom. So we stopped in at this restaurant and bar that her dad was at so she could use the restroom. And we get up to the door and there was a very large, very muscle bound man at the door and he was there to check IDs. And he apparently didn't want anyone under the age of 21 getting in. So he stopped Taylor as she entered, uh, tried to enter this place, and myself and Taylor both, we, we don't look very old, so I can see his suspicions. So he stopped her, and he, he asked for ID, and she presents it. And at this time, Taylor and I are both uh, 21, so both of us are able to get in. At least we should be able to. And he didn't want to let Taylor in. And he looks at her ID, and he's bending it. And I remember, I thought he was going to break the thing in half. He's like bending it, twisting it, turning it. He's got like a UV light. He's looking at it. I'm like, what is this guy doing? And he doesn't think that her ID is real. He thinks that Taylor has a fake ID, and he calls her out on it. So he asks her what's her birthday, and she says it. She gets it right, of course. 
Um, at the moment, I'm like, what is her birthday? And I'm like, <laughs> so, so she knew it, luckily. And then he asks her address. Well, we just moved, and she said our current address instead of the address that was on the ID because he hadn't changed it yet. So that added to his suspicion that Taylor had a fake ID. And she's like, listen, my dad's a cop. And he's like, I don't care who your dad is. I'm not letting you in. So this guy had had the idea that Taylor was using a fake ID because she wanted to illegally purchase alcohol. So it was bad enough that he didn't let her in because she had to use the restroom, but it was worse because he questioned her intent. So we knew that her intentions were pure. She had to use the restroom, but this guy thought that she had a fake ID and, and he wasn't going to let her in to the restaurant. Another case where I was more mildly accused, uh, I was at an airport a couple years ago going through security and there was a quick lane which bypassed some of the ridiculous security procedures that the TSA so graciously bestows on us. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I've never seen a quick lane at the airport. So, oh, the photos. You rock, Becca. Okay, so anyway, I'm at the airport because uh, I think this was actually the same year as the story I just told you about. I don't remember, and that's not really relevant. But we were, we were driving back. <laughs> we were driving back. I, I was just caught off guard by the... I'm like, why are you guys laughing? Now I... <laughs> guys, this is who I am, okay? So those of you listening to the podcast, they're laughing because I have a bunch of funny photos, and you're not going to be able to see them. Sorry. So we're, we're driving back. We'll get back to the airport in a second. Now they know we have photos. We're driving back. Uh, from Florida, and we're in Alabama, and my car breaks down, and I think I have a picture of it. We're on the side of the road there, and uh, Old Faithful there, 200,000 miles, finally decided that she didn't want to go anymore. So we're in Alabama, and we all have to squeeze into Taylor's dad's vehicle to get home, and I'm thinking, great, car's gone, we're going to buy a new car. Well, it ended up being a cheap fix. It's about 70 bucks to fix, and so we drove back with her dad, and then I had to fly back down to pick up the car a week later. So that brings us to the airport story. So I'm there, and <clears throat> I'm going through, I'm, I see this quickly, and I get real excited because I already have, like, my shoes unlaced and everything, and I'm ready to take them off because they think there's bombs in the soles of my shoes. So I, I, I get up there, and I didn't have to take my shoes off. I'm real excited about it, and there's this, this guy standing there, this TSA agent, again, a real big guy. I don't know what it is with the guys with the big muscles, but he's standing there, and he's looking like this, and, and I'm wearing a black hoodie and a black ball cap. And I'm in a horrible mood because I just had to pay $300 to fly down to pick up my piece of garbage car. <laughs> so this guy is screening people, apparently, to see if they're worthy of the almighty quick lane where you don't have to take off your shoes and give up all of your dignity. So we're going, going up a little bit at a time, and he's just eyeballing me. And, of course, instead of smiling like I should have been a nice Christ follower and showed him love, I was just... You're going to stare me down, I'm going to stare you right back. Well, that man had the power that I didn't realize to remove me from the fast lane <laughs> and move me into the goodbye to your dignity lane, which he did. So that man, I'm assuming, was thinking that I had malicious intent, and I did not. I was just trying to get my car from the shop in Alabama. So he pulled me out of line, and again, a mistaken identity. There's many people who have had mistaken identities and many people who have stolen identities, and I'm sure it's no news to you that this can be a really big deal. Those two stories were not as big of a deal, kind of just funny stories to look back on, but, but there can be a lot more consequences, a lot more severe consequences for a stolen identity, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. But before we get any further, would you take a moment to pray with me? Father God, thank you 
thank you for what this day represents, Lord. God, thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your only son to die for us, Lord. But God, we thank you that that wasn't the end. God, we thank you that three days later, Jesus conquered death. Lord, thank you for loving us so much that you went through everything you went through so we could spend eternity with you. Lord, I pray that you'd speak through me today, God, and it would be your words, not mine, that are being spoken. Lord, I pray that these words would penetrate the hearts of everyone here, God, and that our lives would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're constantly bombarded with these ideas of who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to look like and what success is and what a good father is and the, the idea of what an ideal student is and, and what we're supposed to do at work and what we're supposed to wear and how our hair is done and how our kids are supposed to behave in public. There's lots of things that we're constantly thinking about and a lot of things that cause us to judge ourselves and we're worried about what other people are, are judging us based off of. And you know, through high school and college, I, I kind of came to expect that that would happen, but in high school and college especially, those things were of the utmost importance to me, as I imagine a lot of you shared that. And once I was finished with high school, I thought that the judgment and self-consciousness, I thought that that would end. I thought people would just grow up and that the drama would be gone. And while some of that is true, I think the rock band Bowling for Soup summed it up perfectly with the song High School Never Ends. And I can't play the song for you because it's not very appropriate for the setting, but the gist of it is that everything that you think is going to end in high school, it just keeps going into the adult world. And so leaving high school, I had hopes that that judgment would end and the self-confidence issues would go away. And I was hopeful, but it seemed like that hopefulness ended abruptly because of an explosion of this thing called social networking and social media. So welcome to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Vine, Tumblr, Google Hangouts, Line, Snapchat, Periscope, among many, many others. Does anybody remember MySpace? Had such a, such a brief blip there on the radar. So does this stuff really matter? And it seems funny that we ask that because we would all say, well, no, it clearly doesn't matter that much. But, but why is it that these things are so important to us? What is it that they represent? I know a lot of parents ask this question about their kids, and they think, why are my kids spending so much time on social media? Why are they spending so much time on these social networking sites? Why are they spending so much time on Facebook? What is it that these things have to encompass every aspect of their lives? And parents, I ask you, are you doing that? Because if you're doing that, you're modeling that, and your kids are going to see that, and they're going to continue to do that. We need to be very intentional about how much time we're spending on these things because as good as they can be, they can have a negative impact on how we see ourselves and our identity. People have said that the problem with this generation is that they're so self-focused and that they think we're just so important. They think they need to share everything, that they deserve everything, and they think that the reason that your kids and your younger siblings and whoever's using Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and, and all that, it's because they're so self-centered. They think that we are the I generation. We are the me generation. Look at me. Look at the photo I just posted. Look what I just ate. Look at the, the 3K I just ran. Check out what I did generation. And they think that this generation uses these things because we just think we're so great, that this generation thinks that they're so great. But I would like to challenge that thinking and, and consider the idea that the root could actually be something else. You might think that this generation is so focused on how great they are, but 
Could it be that this generation is so insecure in who they are and they feel so inadequate that they're constantly trying to prove themselves through these avenues? The thing about social media and networking sites is that they can have such an adverse effect on what God says about us. And what do I mean? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And in Ephesians chapter 2, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So you have what Facebook and social media is telling you, and then you have what God says. Now, according to the first HomeNet study in 1998, there was a statistically significant relationship between Internet use and depression. Now, the actual cause of that remains open to debate, but the authors of the study argued that the Internet use actually causes depression due to replacing strong offline real relationships with you and me face-to-face with these fake relationships on the internet. It's something they dubbed the internet paradox. And that's because social technology and the internet was made to make us feel connected, but it had the adverse effect. While the internet was there to make us connect with people around the world who we couldn't talk to, it removed the interaction of real human beings. And that causes a problem. Here's a problem with basing your worth and your identity on what you see online. The internet is always going to have something that looks better than what you have. And the grass is always greener on the other side. The grass will always seem greener when you're comparing yourself to HGTV's dream home or when you're comparing yourself to what Chip and Joanna Gaines have done on Fixer Upper. And my wife and I love this show, but, but when you start looking at these shows and you start losing the contentment that you have for what you have, it becomes a problem. Your friends on Facebook are posting their highlights from life, and what does that mean for you? Well, it means that when you're feeling down and you go to the internet to bring your self-esteem back up and, and you want to make yourself a little happier, you go online to read these posts, and what happens is you read these posts about people who are showing all their highlights from life. They have the highlight reels of what they're doing posted on Instagram and Facebook, and while you're feeling down thinking that'll make you feel better, it just makes you feel that much worse because people don't post when they're feeling like this as often as they do when they're feeling like this. So let me encourage you, find who you are in God's word, not online and not through the news feed you're constantly scrolling through on your phone. Now hear me out, I'm not here to bash social media, that's not what I'm about. It can be a great tool and a powerful way to stay connected. And until the last few years, this idea wasn't even imaginable. So this tool can be a, a voice for so many people, and it can be so powerful, but in addition to that, it can be a vice for so many other people. And I've heard people say that they're addicted to their phones, and, and they kind of joke about it and laugh about it, and, and that can become a serious problem, and we'll discuss that more in later weeks when we, we discuss addiction and temptation. Just remember this. You cannot let other people's online presence determine how you look at yourself. For you, maybe there's another area in your life where you're letting something determine your worth and identity. What areas in your life are you letting determine your worth and your self-worth, your identity in Christ? Comparing yourself to the lives of other people around you can, can get you s- stuck right where you're at, and it can, it can suck the life out of you. Looking at another mother and think, man, she's got it all together. Looking at 
The other people you work and think, man, they're really good. The boss really seems to like them. They have got it all together. Looks may be deceiving. I've heard time and time again that people say they wish they could do what that person's doing. They wish that they could have that life. They want that career success or the financial situation that other people are in. They want the designer clothes and the nice vehicle and the big house, and they see all those things, and they think that that is a symbol of success. But maybe, just maybe, all of those things those people have isn't necessarily because of their success, but because of their ability to get into debt. And I'm not saying that everyone that has nice things is in debt. I'm just saying looks can be deceiving. So basing your self-worth off what you see on Facebook or what you see when you're at the workplace or what you see when you're at IV and you see someone drive away in that really nice SUV and and you have to go to your car that you're afraid isn't even going to start, it's deceiving. And it's not something that you should place your self-worth in. If you don't hear anything else today, hear what Galatians tells us. That you, is, that is, you are a son, you are a daughter of the king. No matter what anyone else tells you, whether it's on Facebook, on Instagram, here at church, when you're out at the store, when you're at work, no matter what anyone else tells you, you are a child of God. And that's not a mistake. That is by design. God made you and he has a purpose for your life. I know there's times where I don't feel like I have a purpose or I don't I don't know what my purpose is, and those are the times that Satan is trying to lie to me and tell me I don't have a purpose or I'm not good enough to fulfill God's purpose on my life. So for this, I want to look at a story of a Bible hero, someone that we've talked about before and someone that I'm sure we'll talk about more. I'd like to introduce you to Moses. Now, I know this doesn't seem like your typical Easter biblical hero, but bear with me and I'll try to make sense of it all, I promise. Moses was an Israelite, and during the time he was born, Pharaoh was trying to have all the newborn boys killed in Egypt. So his mother hid him for several months, and then she got to a point where she couldn't do this anymore. So she made a basket, she put him in the basket, and did what any mother would have hated to do, but out of desperation, it's all she could do. She put him in the basket, put him in a river, and watched this basket float away, and prayed that God would protect her son, and that he would spare his life while Pharaoh's trying to kill all these babies. So his sister follows him in this basket down the river and sees that the princess finds this baby, and she has pity on him. And so the the sister runs up to the princess and, and says, would you like me to find someone to help you raise this child? And this is so cool because she says yes, So she goes and finds Moses' birth mother. And she raises Moses for the first few years of his life. Now this is really cool because only God could have lined out something like this. This baby should have been killed by by the ruler of that country at that time. This baby should not be alive. But then someone in the royal household found this very child that should have been killed and spared the child's life. And in addition to that gives the baby back to the baby's birth mother, and then takes it a step further and says, I want to pay for you to raise this child. So the mother gets to raise her own child, and at the expense of the people who wanted to kill the baby, gets to raise her child. Now that is just an awesome God story right there. So Moses grows up as royalty in Egypt. However, one day, years later, as an adult, he sees an Egyptian 
beating a fellow Hebrew, and Moses looks around, and he looks to his left, and he looks to his right, and he thinks nobody is looking, and he kills this Egyptian. He commits murder. And the next day, he's out, and he sees two Hebrews fighting, and he comes up to him and says, why are you brothers fighting with each other? And the one who starts the fight looks at him and says, who are you to judge me? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And Moses at this point is terrified because he realizes that people know and word is going to get around and he is terrified that Pharaoh's going to find out what he did. Well, Pharaoh finds out and Pharaoh tries to kill Moses, so Moses takes off. He leaves. He flees to the land of Midian. So fast forward a couple years. Moses is now married and he's out in the fields tending to his father-in-law's sheep and he takes the flock far out into the wilderness and when he gets out there he gets to Mount Sinai and he sees a bush that's on fire and he approaches the bush and get this it's on fire but it's not burning up the bush is up in flames but it is not burning to a crisp like you would expect from such a fire Moses hears a voice and it's God God is in this burning bush God instructs Moses to remove his shoes because the ground on which he is standing is holy ground and Moses realizes that this is God and he covers his face because he fears for his life so God gives Moses instructions and he tells him that he's going to get his people out of oppression and he's going to use Moses to do it so God gives Moses a couple signs to show Pharaoh he says Pharaoh will not believe you but I will give you many miraculous signs to prove that I am who I say I am so he has a staff and God tells him to throw the staff on the ground and he does and the snake appears from this staff. The staff literally comes to life in the form of a snake, and God tells Moses to pick it up, so he reaches down and picks up the snake by the tail, and it turns back into a staff. And he says, just in case that's not enough, which Moses, let me tell you, it will not be. Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. Put your hand into your cloak. So, so Moses puts his hand into his cloak, and he pulls it out, and it's as white as snow. has a skin disease. God tells him to put his hand back in, and he pulls it out again, and it's back to the same healthy flesh that he has on the rest of his body. And then he tells them that he's going to take some water and dump it onto the ground, and it's going to turn into blood. And these signs God gives Moses to show that he is powerful, and he is who he says he is. So Moses sees these signs right in front of him. And when God tells Moses that he wants him to go, after seeing these signs, Moses still protests it. He tells God that he cannot go, and his, his reason is because he was too slow to speak, and he wasn't good with words. And I think that's something that we can deal with at times. We think that God has called us to do certain things, but surely it's a mistake because we're not equipped to do what he's calling us to do. If God only knew what I did, he wouldn't have me up here preaching. But you know what? God does know. And just like Moses, God tells us that he has a plan for our lives, but we respond by saying we're not ready or we're not good enough for that. Maybe you think you're, you're not a good enough parent to be raising your kids. Maybe you think you're not a good enough teacher. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You know what God says to that? You know what God said to Moses? When Moses said, I cannot speak in front of Pharaoh. God says, who made man's mouth? Who made the deaf, the mute, the seeing, or the blind? Did, I, did not I? Now go. Moses is questioning God on this, and God tells him it's not really up to him at this point because it doesn't matter what Moses' abilities are because God made Moses. God gave him the ability to speak. And while Moses by himself could not do this, through God he could. I want to go back to those verses we talked about earlier 
Genesis 1.27, so God created human beings in his own image. God created Moses. God created you and you and you. God created everyone in here in his image. In Ephesians, for we are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. Remember, you are not an accident. You were created with a purpose, and you were created to perfection. You were created in the perfect image of God. Now, as Moses is questioning this, I can envision this, this other angle that maybe Moses is thinking. And the Bible doesn't necessarily say that Moses said this, but I, I can imagine that Moses, as God is talking to him, is remembering a few years back to when he was in Egypt and he murdered a man. And Moses, I can imagine him thinking, who am I that God can use me? I am a murderer. I fled from this country in fear for my life because I killed somebody in cold blood. And regardless to what you think Moses had on his mind, God chose to use him in spite of his past. And we each have things that we've done in the past. We each have things that we'll do in the future, I'm sure. And we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's just part of being human. But the part that we need to remember is, is like Moses, God can use us, and God will use you in spite of your past. And you might not think you're ever going to amount to something because of your past and because of the sin in your life, but get this, God will forgive you, and he will let go of your past and give you a new start. So who are you? What is your identity? Maybe this morning as I've talked about this unconventional Easter character. You can relate to Moses in some ways. You've done things that you, you just don't think can be forgiven, and you think, David, as you're up there preaching, I, I don't think you understand what I've done, and I don't think that God can forgive me. And while you're right, I may not know what you've done, but God does because he knows everything, and in spite of that, he still loves you. You think that because of the things you've done, you cannot be forgiven. Perhaps you just think that you're not equipped to do what God has called you to do. But this morning, I'm here to tell you that what you're thinking right now could not be further from the truth. There's a God who created you. He created you in his perfect image. He created you to perfection. And while we all sin and while we miss God's mark of perfection, God made us so we can still have relationship with him. He made a way that otherwise wouldn't be possible. So earlier I was talking about a few different times where I was being misjudged or my wife Taylor's true identity was being questioned. Taylor had all the necessary information to prove she was who she was claiming to be. But no matter what we did, we couldn't convince this, this doorman otherwise. There's an example of of this in scripture. There's a man who is misjudged, a man who is misunderstood, a man that no matter what he said and no matter how many signs he used to prove that he was who he said he was, people didn't believe him. This man was the son of God. His name was Jesus. And he was trying to tell the world who he was. And there were so many people that didn't believe him this was a case of mistaken identity to the worst degree. Jesus came to earth, and he did nothing wrong. He lived a perfect life, and he performed many miraculous signs. And at the end of his life, he was murdered. And he wasn't just killed for some crimes he didn't commit, 
but he was tortured. He had the life ripped from him in the most awful way possibly imaginable. In fact, the form of torture that, that Jesus faced was so horrendous that until the late 1500s, there wasn't even a word to describe it. And the word that came out was the word excruciating. The torment that Jesus faced was so horrible on the cross. And, and the torture he faced leading up to what he faced on the cross was so, so tormenting, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. He had his life ripped from him. Would you close your eyes with me? In Jesus' case, this wasn't just a story about mistaken identity or a story where he was falsely accused and killed. This was a love story. And I know it, it may not seem like that when you think about typical love stories, but this is a story of a king, someone who had everything. I want you to imagine this with your eyes closed. Just think about this. This is someone who sat on the seat in heaven, on the throne in heaven, and he gave it up for you. Because he knew that without a perfect sacrifice, without a blameless, perfect, shameless, sinless sacrifice, we couldn't spend an eternity with Jesus in heaven, with God in heaven. Romans 3 tells us that we, we all sin, that every person in here has fallen short of the glory of God. And you see, without Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, without this atonement for our sin, we would have to face these consequences of our sin. Romans also tells us that the wages of our sin is death. And the best part of this verse is that it doesn't end there. The verse goes on to say that even though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The story of Jesus giving his life doesn't end there. The reason we're here today is because Jesus didn't just die for our sins. The Bible tells us that Jesus gave his life for us. And that three days later, this very day, thousands of years ago, he was raised from the dead. And when he came back from death, he took the keys of death and hell with him. Let this Easter be something special for you. Let this weekend be the start of something new. Let this be the beginning of a new life for you. Romans tells us that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. It's that simple. What is your identity? Well, without Christ, it's a sinner. It's someone who is condemned to hell because we have fallen short of God's glorious standard. We're condemned to an eternal separation from God, and that is not something that you want. But with this decision to follow Jesus, with accepting the sacrifice that he gave for us, what is your identity? God's word tells us that your identity in Christ is this. You are a new creation. The old is gone, and there is a new you. You are no longer condemned and you were delivered. You were redeemed from the curse of the law. You were dead from sin and you were set free. You were blameless. And if any of what I just said sounds like something that you want, and you feel this tugging at your heart and you think, 
I don't know who this Jesus is, but it sounds like something I might want to bring into my life. It feels like something that I've had, a void that I've had. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now, and I ask you, I beg you, please don't fight it. Because this could be the day where you decide to follow Jesus. This could be the day where your life turns from an eternity away from God into an eternity with Jesus. I ask that you guys would pray with me. And if you've already made the decision to follow Jesus or not, I ask that you would just pray with me. There's no magical words that you need to say to ask Jesus into your heart. Romans tells us that you just need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that that God raised him from the dead and you have to believe it in your heart. And it's that simple. So I'm going to pray for all of us. And and if this is something that you want, I ask that in your own words that you would ask Jesus into your heart. Father God, thank you that we can worship you today, God. God. Thank you that we have such a great opportunity, God, to celebrate your love for us, Lord. God, thank you that that you died for our sins, God. Thank you for the sacrifice that we're so unworthy of. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here today who doesn't have you in their hearts, Lord, I I pray that they would just open the doors, God, because you're already there, God. You're just waiting for an invitation. I pray that they would ask you into their hearts, Lord. God, thank you for what you did on the cross. But God, not only did you die for our sins, God, thank you that that wasn't the end, God, and that you conquered death and you conquered the grave. God, thank you that we are no longer condemned because of what you did for us, Lord. Church, I want you to know that because of what Jesus did thousands of years ago, that he did for the entire world, for people who have since passed, and people who aren't even born yet, that he would have done it just for you. And know that because of what he did, we are no longer slaves.